a little bit different today. We are talking through the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is about, well, you're going to find out what it's about. But one of the aspects of Ruth is, uh, it kind of talks about the plight of the ancient woman and the, the, the plight of women in the Bible and such. So, anyway, I was working through teaching stuff and thought I need to at least interview a lady on their take on the book of Ruth. And so I asked Jen Kerr, our administrator slash children's director slash guru of all things at Polaris, if she would speak on behalf of like women's view of this book and so she got to writing and I started to look at what she was and I was like why am I even bothering so I talked to our elders I said guys do you care if Jen just does the talk and they said no we're good with that and I'm good with that and so it's really good like the best treatment on the book of Ruth that I've ever heard so I'm going to get off the stage please welcome Jen Kerr. morning. Let me move that so I don't break it. Okay. Well, this past week, I hope you've had a chance to read either the chapter called The Faith of a Foreign Woman in the Story or to read the book of Ruth from your Bible. Um, there are a lot of things in the book of Ruth that make my 2014 brain just want to explode. I grew up in a, in a world where women could wear pants and vote and hold a job, support their families, own your own business, or even run for president. So sometimes when I look at the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you start to wonder, did God really care about women? Did he even remember that they existed? Um, When we read the book of Ruth at first glance, it sort of looks like it's just yet another awful recounting of the plight of two women. But when we look closer, we see a very clear picture of God's love for Ruth and for Naomi and for all of us as well. The book of Ruth tells us a story that occurs during the period of the judges. And at the beginning of the book, the author shares with us that this was a period when the Israelites, God's chosen people, did whatever was right in their own eyes. They were not honoring God's laws. And so God allowed them to suffer for not keeping his covenant with them. At the beginning of this story, there's a severe famine in the land. So a man named Elimelech and a woman named Naomi were married, and they had two sons named Milan and Killian. They decided to pack up their family and move to Moab. Now, Moab was one of the people groups that had oppressed the Israelites during the time of the judges. When they rebelled against God, God would allow people groups to come in and and oppress them. And then they would repent and he would rescue them. So this was one of those people groups. So in order for them to see moving to Moab as their best option, the famine had to have been really bad. When they move to Moab, Elimelech dies while they are there. The two sons, Milan and Killian, get married to two women named Ruth and Orpah. It is not Oprah. 
After about 10 years, the two sons die, which leaves Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah as widows. Now, at this point in history, if you were a widow, that was pretty much the equivalent of being sentenced to a life of poverty. If you didn't have a husband to care for you, you pretty much had no options. Naomi, specifically, has been stripped of her entire identity. She's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, and she's a foreigner. She's pretty much hit rock bottom. Naomi hears that the famine has ended in Israel, and she decides that she's going to move back. Ruth and Orpah, her two daughters-in-law, begin traveling back with her. And this is going to make things a lot easier for Naomi to have two younger women with her to help care for her. But Naomi wants what's best for these two women, and so she pleads with them to please return to Moab. Go back to your families. Start your life over again. Orpah chooses to go back to Moab, and we can't fault her for this because this is the sensible thing to do. It's truly her only route to any kind of security for the rest of her future. After a tearful goodbye, she parts ways with Naomi. Ruth, however, commits herself to staying with Naomi. And Ruth 1.16 is probably the most famous verse from the book of Ruth. Ruth tells Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth leaves behind her family, her friends, and the only land she has ever known to follow her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem. Most importantly, she accepts the God of Israel as her God. Sometimes scripture speaks to our lives. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you have to make a difficult choice and there's not really a clear right or wrong answer? Maybe you have to choose between staying in your current job or accepting a new position. Maybe you have to choose between taking an aging parent into your home and caring for them or choosing to put them into a skilled nursing facility. Sometimes there's hard decisions to be made that just don't have a clear right or wrong. Well, when Naomi and Ruth get to Bethlehem, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth asks Naomi for permission to go glean in the fields. Now remember, we read several weeks ago that after God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he established a nation for them and he gave them laws to follow. In Deuteronomy 24 and 19, he establishes the concept of gleaning. It says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. God sort of establishes a welfare system for the poor. One day, Ruth, or, I'm sorry, yeah, Ruth was gleaning in a field owned by a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz happened to be related to Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Boaz stopped by the field, and Ruth catches his eye. He asks his servant who Ruth is, and the servant explains. Boaz approaches Ruth, and he has a conversation with her. In Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, Boaz says to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. 
I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about all you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Here we see where they meet. He sees her. She sees him. Lunch turns into sort of a first date. Now, for those of you who don't know me, this handsome guy is my husband, Mike. And believe it or not, that was me once upon a time. And we will be celebrating our 19th anniversary this month. Then Boaz gives some directions regarding Ruth to his servants. In Ruth 2, 15 and 16, he says, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, but don't rebuke her. Well, Ruth must have made quite an impression for Boaz to show her such favoritism. Ruth is a woman, and she's a widow, and she's a foreigner. She is an absolute nobody. And yet she has chosen to live a life of excellence. She devotes herself to backbreaking work in order to care for her mother-in-law. This does not go unnoticed by God. And through Boaz, a man who lived out a God-honoring life, God blesses Ruth. Ruth continues to glean in the fields throughout the barley harvest and then throughout the wheat harvest. And this would have been a period of about seven weeks. After the end of the harvest, Naomi, out of her concern for Ruth, hatches a fix-up plan for Ruth and Boaz. Once again, we look back at the rules that God established for the Israelites. And in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, God commanded, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is one of those places in the story that I just can't quite wrap my head around. As much as I like Mike's brothers, if anything ever happens to Mike, the thought of being legally obligated to marry one of them makes my skin want to crawl off. But God has a purpose. Naomi is familiar with this law, and she hatches a plan to find out if Boaz is willing to honor this law by marrying Ruth. Naomi knows that Boaz will be on the threshing floor that night, winnowing barley. 
She tells Ruth to go get all dolled up. This would be the equivalent of bathing, putting on some perfume, and wearing her best clothes. The poor widow's best clothes probably were not all that fancy, though. And then she's supposed to go to the threshing floor. Naomi instructs Ruth to wait until Boaz has finished eating and drinking and falls asleep on the threshing floor. Then Ruth is told to uncover Boaz's feet and lie down at his feet and wait until Boaz wakes up. Then he will tell her what to do. I can only imagine what Ruth was thinking. You want me to do what now? You know, this is the stuff restraining orders are made out of Naomi. And if Boaz doesn't wake up and think that she's completely crazy, he could be angry and hurt her. Or worse yet, he could take advantage of the woman laying next to him in the middle of the night. But Ruth must have had complete and total trust in Naomi's to have her best interest at heart because she goes and does everything that Naomi has told her to do. Boaz suddenly wakes up around midnight, maybe because his feet were cold. And he realizes that there's a woman lying at his feet. Now it's very dark and he can't tell who it is, so he asks Ruth who she is. And he identifies, she identifies herself as his servant Ruth. And here we see Boaz's response to her. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a noble, a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Boaz recognizes Ruth's actions as a request for his protection and for marriage. Once again, Boaz reveals his integrity and his kindness. Boaz is willing to fulfill his role as Ruth's kinsman redeemer. However, he knows that there is another relative who is more closely related and therefore gets first dibs on Ruth. Can you imagine the thoughts running through Ruth's mind that night? I'm sure she didn't sleep a wink. Tomorrow, my fate is going to be decided. Will I marry Boaz or will I marry the other guy? What's the other guy like? I don't know Boaz all that well, but I don't know the other guy at all. That's going to be awkward. What if he's mean? What if the rest of my life is completely miserable? How would my life have turned out differently if I had gone back to Moab like Orpah? I would think that her mind was racing like that all night long. Have you ever found yourself in a stressful situation and allowed your mind to race like that? What if I had chosen a different career path? What if I had chosen a different spouse? What if I had chosen to have children? What if I had chosen not to have children? What if I had chosen to move to a different state? What if, what if, what if? Well, in the morning, Boaz gives Ruth a gift of grain to take back to Naomi, and then he sneaks her out of there before the town gossips can get hold of the fact that the two of them spent the night together on the threshing floor. Ruth returns to Naomi and gives her a full report of what has happened. 
Boaz goes that very day to the city gate. Now, at this time in history, the elders of the town would meet at the city gate and hold a sort of a court where legal matters could be settled. Boaz waits for the relative in question to pass by, and then Boaz, the relative, and ten elders of the town sit down and basically hash out a business deal. Boaz explains to this elder that Naomi is selling Elimelech's land, and that as the closest relative, he has first dibs at buying or redeeming that land. The relative says that he is willing to do that. He will buy back the land. Then Boaz throws uh, Ruth into the mix. He explains that um, if you redeem this land, you also have to marry Ruth. And if you marry Ruth, you have to have children with her. And then when you have children, the firstborn son gets Elimelech's inheritance. At this point, the relative says, whoa, I'm out. If I marry Ruth and we have children, then my family's inheritance and Elimelech's family's inheritance could get intermixed, and I just, I can't take that kind of a chance. I'm out, man. Like, she is all yours. Well, as was the custom at that time, the relative takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz as a sign that the deal is sealed. Now, again, this is just one of those things I can't quite grasp. How is taking off your dirty, smelly shoe and handing it to somebody else a way of sealing a business transaction? Like, what's Boaz supposed to do with it? And then the other guy walks home with one shoe on, one shoe off. I don't really get it. Anyhow, now that Boaz has the sandal, he announces to the elders and the people of the town, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Milan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Milan's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. The language here is really unflattering from a 2014 perspective. Boaz tells everyone he has acquired Ruth as his wife. She appears to be nothing more than an object in a business transaction. I hope that Mike never refers to me as his acquisition. However, we need to put the language aside and see the selfless and God-honoring actions of Boaz. Boaz commits to buying property, vowing himself to a wife, and forfeiting his right to his firstborn son. The time between Ruth's middle-of-the-night request and the sealing of this deal is less than 24 hours. Boaz did what was right in God's eyes without hesitation. He knew what was right under God's law, and he did it. When I think back to the beginning of the book of Ruth, Remember that the author said this was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes and they didn't honor God's laws. So I question, how did Boaz turn out to be a man who was willing to obey even this very difficult law? And in my opinion, the answer can be found in Matthew 1, verse 5. This is part of a genealogy. And this part of the genealogy says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now remember, two weeks ago, we learned about Rahab. 
She was the prostitute from Jericho who helped the spies. And in return for her help, God saved her and her family when every other person in all of Jericho was destroyed. And I can't help but wonder that maybe Rahab was so grateful to God that she made a point of raising a son who loved and honored God. Well, the elders of the town were witnesses, and they pronounced the blessing on Ruth. Then they pronounced a double blessing on Boaz. Boaz married Ruth, and they had a son named Obed. Biologically, Obed was Boaz's son, but legally he was Milan's son. And therefore, Naomi's family was restored. So what kind of a story is this? Is this a story about two women who were dealt a bad hand and then treated like property in a business transaction? Or is this a much deeper story with many more lessons for us to glean? Ruth and Naomi found themselves stripped of the security that they once had, facing a life of poverty and hardship. Many women would have been angry and bitter. Many women would have behaved selfishly in that situation. Ruth could have told Naomi she was on her own back in Moab. Naomi could have placed very self-serving demands on Ruth when they got back to Bethlehem. But both women exemplified a noble character. Both women were devoted to doing what was best for the other. Naomi at least had connections from the past in Bethlehem. But Ruth was truly a nobody. She was a woman, she was a widow, and she was a foreigner from an enemy land. But she decided to dedicate herself to a life of simple excellence. She worked hard in the fields. She provided unselfishly for Naomi. She probably didn't think that anybody noticed or anybody cared, but God did. God saw the way she lived her life. He saw her sincerity toward Naomi and toward him, and God blessed Ruth for it. He used his servant Boaz to bless Ruth and through Ruth to bless Naomi. Do you ever feel like a nobody? Do you ever feel like no one's watching and no one cares? God does. God knows. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul commends us, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do whatever you do to the glory of God. If you're cleaning your house, clean it to the glory of God. Oversee the nightly homework assignments to the glory of God. If you work at McDonald's, make french fries to the glory of God. If you work for the post office, deliver the mail to the glory of God. And when God sees one of his people sincerely living a noble and excellent life, he is willing to bless that. In Psalm 512, it says, Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you that I have anything close to the character of Ruth, but I'll share with you a story from my life. I used to work at the Brunswick Rec Center, and I had several different positions when I worked there, and some of them I truly enjoyed. But there was one position that I, it was just miserable. It was called Building Monitor. And there's nothing wrong with being the building monitor, but that position and my personality were a really bad mix. I used to find myself coaching myself through a shift of being the building monitor and telling myself, whatever you do, 
do it to the glory of God. I would like to believe that God honored that because one day out of the blue, Alex called and said, hey, Jen, would you have any interest in working in the church office? And it turns out not to be as miserable as being building monitor. As we have worked our way through the story so far, we have watched God's plan unfold for establishing a special people group that are supposed to be set apart for God. God started out with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob to build up his nation of people. Through Abraham, he promised them the land of Canaan. And then he led Joshua and the Israelites on a conquest of the land, wiping out all the people who lived there. So it would seem that only the Israelites have an in with God. The Israelites are born into God's kingdom and everybody else is out of luck, right? Well, the story of Ruth makes it clear that God's kingdom and God's love and redemption are for everyone. Ruth was a foreigner from a land that had oppressed God's people, the Israelites, no less. And yet once she devoted herself to following God, God honored and blessed that. God used her to restore Naomi, and his blessing on Ruth continued for many generations to come. Back to Matthew chapter 1. This genealogy we looked at turns out to be the genealogy of Jesus. It starts out with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verses 5 and 6, we read, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. God continued to bless Ruth for her life when he made her great-grandson the king of Israel. But it didn't stop there. When we continue on through this genealogy and get to verse 16, it ends with, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. God continued to bless the descendants of Ruth all the way down to when he delivered us the king of all creation, the one who came to save and redeem the whole world, Israelites and Gentiles alike. The book of Ruth introduces us to Boaz, a man who followed God's laws and was used by God to save or redeem Ruth and Naomi. This foreshadows the Redeemer to come, Jesus Christ, the one who redeems us all. Throughout the book of Ruth, the actions of Boaz are kind, honest, and obedient to God without hesitation. When the big moment comes, Boaz doesn't hesitate to show kindness to Ruth and Naomi by buying back Elimelech's land. This took away Ruth and Naomi's uncertain future by securing their inheritance. Jesus showed us the greatest kindness when he laid down his life to secure our inheritance and give us eternal life in heaven with him. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So what about you? Maybe you're like Ruth. Maybe you look at your life, and it's pretty hard. 
Are you willing to live a life of excellence and let God be your enough? Or maybe you're like Boaz. Maybe God is calling you to an act of sacrificial obedience. Are you willing to step up and be obedient and trust God to be your enough?